I wanted to begin, uh, the, the title of this message is The Road Less Traveled, and it's taken from a poem by Robert Frost called The Road Not Taken. And so I want to begin by reading this short poem, and the verses will be up there on the screen. It begins like this, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent and the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing there, had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, it leaves no step had trodden back. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. It's a very interesting poem, and I would encourage you to, to go back on the internet and read it and kind of think about what he's saying. But the gist of what I get from this is that he has these two ways that he can take, these two roads he can travel. And he realizes as he goes on the road less traveled that as life goes on, it's likely that he's never going to get back to that previous road that this choice he has made has led to the, all these other choices. But, you know, what's interesting is kind of the imagery reminded me of someone long before Robert Frost who spoke of a, on a similar theme. And that person is the Lord Jesus. And this is what the Lord Jesus had to say about two different roads in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So it seems clear to me that for our purposes, we can think about the road less traveled as the narrow gate, as the difficult way. That's the road that we're called to walk on. It is the road less traveled by. And as we travel down that road, like Robert Frost says, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference, but what we'll find as we move down this road, and I'm sure what you've found already if you've been a Christian for more than about 30 minutes, is that it is a difficult road. It is a, a, a harsh way because we have these enemies. We have the world. We have our own flesh. We have the devil waging war with us, and this is similar to what we see here in Psalm 17. That Now, we don't know for sure the background about Psalm 17, but it is conjectured by commentators that this David wrote this psalm when he was on the run from Saul. Now, it's likely that he wrote many psalms when he's on the run from Saul. Because if you remember the biblical story, God has anointed David as king. Saul's not happy about the situation. So Saul, over and over again, seeks to kill David. So imagine that. Imagine if you were in a place where over and over again, your boss sought to kill you. You would probably have a lot to say about that. <laughs> you probably would have a lot to write about that and think about that or in this day and age, maybe blog about it or get uh, protection from that. And so David is on the run from Saul. And so he's going to kind of talk about these two different paths, the, paths of, the path of the person who believes and the path of the person who doesn't. But I, I really believe the key we're going to find is actually in verse 15. So notice in verse 15 how it starts. David writes, as for me. So David is saying, I'm on a different path from Saul. 
I'm on a different path from my persecutors. I'm on a different road. I'm on the road less traveled, and it is a difficult way. So this psalm is a great reminder for us. It's a great reminder that the road less traveled, the narrow gate, the difficult way is just that. It's difficult. It's challenging. And it's going to be a challenge until we get home to be with the Lord. And that's the great thing about the end of this psalm. Spoiler alert, it ends on a high note. And it tells us how we can be satisfied, but he's going to tell us that that satisfaction isn't found in this world. It's not going to be yet. That full satisfaction is not going to happen just yet. He's going to say that Mick Jagger and Bono were right. Just can't find no satisfaction. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. The, the, the fact of the matter is this difficult way, the road less traveled, is worth it in the end, but it's very, very challenging along the way. All right, so let's jump into Psalm 17. I want to go ahead and read these verses up front, and then we'll make our way through this passage. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now uh, surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with hidden treasure, with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. All right. So let's look at verse one here. David begins by calling out to the Lord. He says, here a just cause, O Lord. Here a just cause, O Yahweh. Covenant God, relating God, the God I know. And so David is asking God to hear him because David's cause is just. David is in the right. Now, this is an important point here. David isn't asking God to intervene simply because David um, wants something. You know, you think about, uh, and we were that kid, and maybe we've experienced it as adults. You know, you you go by a certain aisle in a store, and uh, you're drawn to it. You want that thing. Maybe for you, it's like you need to stay off of Amazon. uh, Because you're on there, and like, oh, I'm drawn to that thing. I just, I want that thing for myself. And we understand what that's like. David's not saying that. David's not saying, Lord, I'm just kind of bored. Could you give me something? Would you, would you just give me something so I could feel happy? No, David is asking God to intervene because injustice is taking place. He's saying what's happening right now is not right. What's happening right now doesn't line up with how you want things done. 
That's what David is saying here. His cause is just. And so there's a question for us as we think about this. You know, it's can we pray this prayer? Can we say to the Lord, hey, hear a just cause, O Lord. Listen to me. In other words, are we praying for God's will to be done or are we simply praying for our will to be done? Are we, are we asking God, I want your will to be done here on earth? Or are we just saying, Lord, I just want things to be better for me. So please change things for me. Because if I'm honest, I'm usually just trying to get my will done. I, I, I'm on kind of on a surface level, I'm concerned with God's way of doing things. But if I'm honest, I kind of want God's will to be done. That way, life is easier for me. That way, life kind of goes the way that I want it to be. And it's kind of smooth and it's, it's not too challenging. But that's not what God is wanting for us. Now, it's funny, and one of the challenges for me, and we'll kind of get to this more in a little bit, is as I teach week after week after week after week, I find myself that I'm genuinely saying the same thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I remember Pastor Chuck would always say that, you know, sheep forget, all right? So sheep need to be reminded. But then what I find out is I teach these things every Sunday, and that yet Monday through Saturday, I need to be reminded of them. I need to be reminded that, oh yeah, this is how the Lord says. So I think it's important for us to, to, to take to heart. And even if you've heard me say these things hundreds or maybe even thousands of times, it still remains true. And it's still things that we need to take to heart. And so looking for it is, is our kids, you know, um, as, as we think about our kids when they were young, right? How we treated them. And sometimes we kind of treat God the same way. Here's where I'm going with this. We can kind of try to convince God to do things the way that we want him to do. We kind of want to manipulate him. Because when our kids were younger, it was easy to convince them to do what you wanted to do, while all the while trying to trick them into thinking it's really what they wanted to do. You know, there were two different restaurants we were choosing, and you know that your kids really wanted to go to this restaurant, but you know they had horrible pizza. And you know that there were just like rodents that were animatronic. And so what happened is instead of wanting to go to that place, which shall remain unnamed, we kind of convinced our kids, no, this is really what you want. You don't want to go to that place. You want to go here. You know what they wanted, but you try to manipulate them. And if you're any good at it, you were able to, to, tell, to go where you wanted them to go. Sometimes that's kind of what our prayer life degenerates into. Our life with the Lord degenerates into this, I'm going to try to find out if I can make God do my will, all the while thinking that my will is really his will. And they kind of work that system. And then we end up being frustrated and angry with God because God's too smart for us. He can't be manipulated by us. And so we would be wise to remember that the triune God is not a child who can be manipulated into submission. In fact, in the relationship, the Bible makes it clear that we're the child in the relationship. That we're the ones, but thankfully, God the Father does not use manipulation. He wants what's best for us, and so we would be wise to, to simply say, I, I want your will to be done, and when we have injustice in our lives, like, Lord, intervene and, and make this right, if that's your will, but help me to even, even if you leave me in this injustice, help me to learn from that. Help me to grow through that. All right, continuing on in verse one, David says, attend to my cry, Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. And so he's saying, essentially, please listen to me, God, because I'm telling the truth. Please listen to me because I'm not being deceitful about this situation. And as we think about it, again, in context of David and Saul, David had done nothing against Saul. 
David had done nothing to provoke Saul. David had been faithful, and on numerous occasions, David chose not to attack Saul, not to kill Saul. And so in the midst of this, David is the, the, the party who's being wronged against. Now, what's interesting is we kind of consider all of this. God allowed David to be in that season for a long time allowed him to be in that situation for quite a while. And so there's an unpleasant reminder for us that we may find ourselves in an unjust situation. We might find ourselves in in that place. And so what happens is God may leave us there for his own purposes. Now, I'm not saying don't cry out to him. Don't ask him for, for change. You should, but I can't guarantee you and you can't guarantee yourself that just because we pray, God's gonna take us out of it. Now, There is a reminder here, though, as David speaks about his lips not being deceitful, it's vital that we're honest when we pray, that we're honest when we pray, that when we pray to God, that we don't kind of just, you know, rush into it and here's my list and here's my system and here's how I do things and I can do it without thinking like we can sometimes do with during worship and song. We can sing those songs because we've sung them before and our mind is a million miles away. It's not honest. So we need to be honest when we pray. We need to be honest with God about what we really want, kind of what's really going on. But we also need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves in prayer because it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves in prayer. I do this so often. I I want a person to be changed, not because I want what's best for them, but because they're making my life difficult. So, So Lord, fix them so I can have an easier time. And it's not really a heart for that person. It's really a love of comfort for myself. And so really spending some time before the Lord, allowing the, the, his word to wash over us, it really helps bring us to that place of honesty and prayer. So remember, God cannot be fooled by us, but we can fool ourselves. And so for, it's really helpful to ask God to make our motives clear to us. That's a radical prayer to pray is, Lord, would you just help me to see what I really want in this situation? Help me, hold up a mirror to, my, to me, Lord, and show me what's going on. Show me what I'm really asking for in this situation. And if, if we're really honest in that prayer, he's going to show us. And, and you've, as you probably experienced it, it's not always a pretty picture, right? It's not always, it doesn't always look good, but it is good. It's always good to know the truth. It's always good to walk in reality. Verse two, David continues. He says, let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. And so this word vindication there means judgment, the decision to be made in the case is basically kind of, you kind of think about in a courtroom situation, there's David, you know, on the one side and there's Saul on the other. And so David is asking God to judge. He's asking God to judge in his favor because he's in the right here. And so he's basically saying, look on my case because I'm in the right. It's legitimate what I have to say. And so David is asking the Lord to settle matters. And this is very important. He's not trying to settle the issue himself. It's really, really important. David is asking the Lord to settle matters. He's not trying to settle the issue himself. Usually, as believers, we have kind of a a certain kind of clock in our head related to certain issues. And so we ask over and over again for God to take care of the issue he doesn't. And so we're like, well, I got to do this myself now. <laughs> I've got to take care of this. 
You know, and it's interesting because the scripture says things like, um, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. But he doesn't say in there, I will repay by X date. I will repay in this many days or I'll do that. No, no, he says, vengeance always belongs to me. You keep staying out of it for as long as it takes. And I, and I think that really David, even though he's frustrated, even though he's upset, even though he's probably weary at the situation, David actually lived up to this because David had these two specific opportunities where Saul was in a situation to be killed by him on two separate occasions. One, you remember the, the first one, I believe was pretty awkward. Saul was going to the bathroom in a cave and David was there. And David's buddies encouraged him, kill him. Here's your chance. And David cut off the edge of his robe. And then David felt guilty about even doing that. And then said to Saul, hey, I, I had a chance to kill you. I cut off your uh, part of your robe. I shouldn't have done that. Saul's like, oh, we're buds again. But then Saul went back in another t- situation. Saul's asleep. David sneaks up, has an opportunity to kill him. One of David's men says, hey, let me just have this spear. I'll pierce him through. He won't rise again. It'll be over. And David says, no, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. If the Lord wants me to be king, he's going to make me to be king. If the Lord wants Saul off my back, he's going to have to be the one to get him off my back. And that's a radical act of faith. David had a lot of issues. David had a lot of problems. We can, we can be here all day talking about David's failures as a, as a husband, David's failures as a parent. He had a lot of messages, but that doesn't mean that he never did anything right. And David did some things right. And when it came to the situation with Saul, he was willing to wait on the Lord. Verse three, he says, you've tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Now, again, this, if we take verse three and we lift it out of the context of what's going on here, it seems like what in the world is David talking about? Because it seems like David is claiming sinlessness, but we must understand verse three in the context of this chapter, in the context of David's situation here, which again, I believe is his issue with Saul. He's, David was not sinless, but he says, in the midst of my situation with Saul, in the midst of this difficulty, I'm not at fault. I'm not the one causing this problem. Because as we read the scriptures, we realize that David, if he could have had peace with Saul, he would have had peace with Saul. And so it talks about that in the Paul, I believe it's in the book of Romans. And he says, as much as it is possible, as much as depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And so that's what we're called to as believers. We're called to have peace with others. But you know what? Not everybody wants to have peace with us. And so from David's side, he wanted to have peace. From Saul's side, he didn't. But I love the, the, the heart behind verse three is David is asking God, search my motives, right? To figure out, in my life, kind of what's going on, what things that you want to take care of. And this reminds me of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. So I'm going to read these verses for you. It says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is the psalmist asking for there? You know, he says, when he says, search me and know me, try my heart, see if there's any anxieties. The psalmist is not saying, God, you don't know what's in my heart. God knows what's in everybody's heart, right? It's nothing is secret from God. And, and, but what David is saying, or the psalmist, whoever wrote Psalm 139, forget, I think it's David. He's saying, help me to see what's in my own heart. 
Help me to know what my anxieties are. Help me to see if there's any wicked way in me. And if there is, cleanse it, take it away, and lead me in the way everlasting. Because let's be honest, we don't always know ourselves very well. And it's easy for us, especially the busyness of the society that we live in, to constantly inundate our stuff with with media uh, so that we never actually think about our own hearts. Kind of what our heart's like. What is it I'm really desiring you know, and, and if you're and maybe you're in a situation where you're just you're you're just angry so much, just always angry, take some time to ask God, why am I so angry? What's going on? What what's happening in my life? What's happening in my heart? What is it I'm going for that's not being fulfilled? Help me to see that. So that's what David is calling out for in this situation. I think it's what we should do as well. And I think there's three questions related to what we read in verse three. And question number one is, do I invite God to test my heart? Do I continually invite God to test my heart? Because you understand this truth that we can resist the Lord. That, that the Lord wants to speak to us and lead us and guide us, but we can really just shut him down. And the, the Lord will kind of let us do our own thing. And so do we invite the Lord to test our heart? Number two, it kind of goes on with this. Am I willing to be corrected by God? So when God tests my heart and then he says, this is what you're doing wrong, am I willing to receive that correction? Am I willing to say, okay, that's true. Let's do something about that. And the thirdly and finally, and perhaps this is the most challenging, am I willing to be corrected by others? Because we may not like this, but a part of the humbling process is God is going to use other people to correct us. And it's going to be very easy for us to say, well, who do you think you are? I see how you do life. I saw how you drove out of this parking lot today. Uh, who, who are you to talk to me about things? And so it's going to be very easy for us as God uses people to correct us, people to point out things in our lives, to just reject that. But I would encourage you, I encourage me to humble ourselves, to invite God to test us, to receive correction from God, and to receive correction from others. All right, let's move on to verse four. David writes, concerning the works of men, uh, I, I had the wrong emphasis there. Let's slow it down. Concerning the works of men. Okay, so what he's doing right now is he's talking about the ways of fallen men. That's what David's talking about. He's talking about the people who are on the other path. They're on the path that is most often taken, the broad way that leads to destruction. So he's saying concerning them, the broad way that leads to destruction, here's what he says. Concerning the works of men, of fallen men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. In other words, David says, I haven't chosen to go on that path. I haven't chosen to go on the broad way that leads to destruction. I haven't chosen to go on that well-worn path. David has chosen to obey the word of God, and that kept him from taking the paths of the destroyer. And that's interesting. Jesus says, right, that the end is destruction. The broad way leads to destruction. And so that's what David says here, the, the way of the paths of the destroyer. And, and so... This is so vitally important that for us to avoid that way of the destroyer, we have to take heed to the words of God's lips. That's the word of God. The, the word of God and the spirit of God in, informing the word of God is what enables us to stay on the right path. Now, you remember when the Lord Jesus 
He was baptized by John there at the beginning of his ministry. He had, the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it says, immediately the Holy Spirit took him out to the wilderness. And Jesus was out there in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, no bread, no water. And at the end of those 40 days, Satan came to tempt him. And Satan had three different temptations. And every time Jesus responded to Satan, the way he responded was through the word of God. In fact, you know, when, when Satan said, hey, why don't you just turn this bread and these stones into bread? He says, you know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And all three of those times where Satan was rebuked by Jesus through the word of God, it was through the book of Deuteronomy. As, as I love that, that, that God used a book that you and I probably are not going to say is our favorite book of the Bible. But he used that to rebuke Satan. And so for you and I, if we're going to keep from the paths of the destroyer, and he's subtle about it, we have to be people who submit to the word of God's lips, to, to what he has said and to be led and guided by him. All right, verse 5 it says, uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. Now, it's interesting. We have the word paths in verse four and then the word paths in verse five. And they're actually two different words in the Hebrew. And I think what David is doing here is talking about this as a different path. But the word path in verse five is very interesting. It speaks of the well-worn paths made by wagons or carts. So you're going to think about in the olden days, it's like a wagon or a cart would be moving through this place over and over again. And so it would make those divots in the ground. And so he's saying, hold me my steps in your paths. In other words, those well-worn paths, keep me in that well-worn path that my footsteps may not slip. It's interesting. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, we read these words. Thus says the Lord. Stand in the ways and see. Ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Now I'm going to read that again in just a moment because this is what the Lord is saying that the people should ask for. He's saying that the people should ask, stand in the ways and see, ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. So God is telling the people, here's what you should ask for. Right? Here's what you should desire. What should you desire? The old paths. Right? The kind of how things were, the, the things that have been set out, the path of righteousness. And it's interesting because if you kind of think about it in, the, in the, the book of Acts, Paul went to Athens and there the guys were gathered at Athens there, um, Mars Hill. And it says every day they just wanted to talk about and hear some new thing. That's all they were concerned about. What's the new? What's the new? What's the new? And that's never changed in man. That, that, that's why the internet is so popular. Because what's the new? What's the new? What's the new? But God says, how about the old past? It's not about what's new. It's not about what's latest thing. It's not about what people say about things now. It's not about all this all progressive and change. No, 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 no. Find the old way. Find the old past. Walk in it. You'll find rest for your souls. Now, the very end of Jeremiah 6, 16 is disappointing because it says that the people say, we'll not walk in it. So God tells them, go to the old paths, the old ways. That's where the good way is. You'll find rest for your souls. And the people tell God point blank, not going to do it. We're not going to walk in those ways. And so that's not good. 
And so the question for you and I is, am I obsessed always with something new or am I want the old paths, the old ways that God has set forth, that, that narrow way, that difficult way, that road less taken? Now, I do want to come again to the last part of verse five here, where he says that my footsteps may not slip. And this is very interesting because David is saying that he's on the correct path, that he's on the road less taken, yet even on that road, he can slip. Even on that road, he can fall. So he's asking for God to uphold him. So the, the idea is that the difficult way could be slippery. The, the narrow path can be hard. And so I want to take some time to work through Psalm 73. So let's go to Psalm 73 for a minute, because who knows how long it's going to be before we get to Psalm 73. So Psalm 73 ties in beautifully with this chapter. Now, I'm going to read through the kind of read and go through the, the whole chapter, but it's a similar idea. Similar to kind of what David has experienced in Psalm 17. And most likely what we read about in Psalm 73 is a lot of what we've dealt with in our own lives. Like kind of the struggles that we have and kind of seeing how the world goes and wondering, is it worth it? Should I keep on this path? Should I keep to the old way? And so this is a Psalm of Asaph. And he says, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Now, interesting, notice what he says, but as for me, that's the same phrase that we saw there in Psalm 17 at the end of the chapter. So he says, the, truly God is good in Israel to such as are pure in heart, but as for me, here it is, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. So even though Asaph was on the right path, what happened is he found himself in a situation where he's starting to slip on that path. He found himself in a situation where he's upset. We're going to see why that is. Notice, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He got his eyes onto the people of this world that are doing well in ungodliness. They're profitable. They're making lots of money. They got big houses and nice cars and all of these things. And he began to slip on his path. He, and then this is what he had to think. This is what he thought about the ungodly. He says, there are no pangs in their death but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters are full, a full cup drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And where is the knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. And let's stop there for just a second. So Asaph is walking the path. He's walking with the Lord, but his, his view is limited, right? As all of us ours is. He doesn't see everything. So he just views by appearance and he says, it seems like the ungodly are making it. It seems like the ungodly are getting whatever they want. It seems like they don't have trouble. They can pay for whatever they want. They are just living the life. And so here's where it comes to it in verse 13. He's so overwhelmed. He's so frustrated that he just feels like, well, let's, let's, let's be done with this. Let's be done with this path. He says this, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. 
He's had enough. So I love the honesty of this because, you know, for us, for the most part, we're, we're, we're too genteel to say this kind of thing in church. <laughs> but Asaph says this, it's been a mistake. Why in the world did I clean my hands? Why in the world have I washed my hands in NC? Because what I find is that every day, it seems like it's getting worse. It seems like I'm moving steadily uphill. It seems like God is getting after me every morning. But then, verse 15, he had come to a realization. He'd had an epiphany. He realized that he wasn't thinking accurately. He wasn't thinking rightly. He said, if I had said this, I'm sorry, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. So he's saying, if I had just started spreading that message, I would have been in the wrong. I would have been leading people astray. I would have been teaching them something that was false. And then he says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. So he was conflicted. He sees the ungodly prospering. He feels like it's been a waste to follow God. He knows that he shouldn't share that with other people because if something is not right, he knows it's going to lead them astray. It doesn't correspond to God's word. So he, he can't figure out what to do. So what does he do? He goes to the Lord, verse 17. He goes to the Lord. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood therein. You and I, if we judge things by our appearance and our thoughts and by what people have to say, at best, we're going to have a partial truth. We're not going to see the whole picture till we come before the Lord. We come to the Lord, Lord, what do you say about these things? What, what, what is the truth of the matter? And so then everything changed. Notice even the imagery, verse 18, surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. He says, in reality, my way wasn't slippery. It's their way that's slippery. My way is hard, but their way is slippery. They're the ones on their way to destruction. He says, oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. In other words, their judgment is coming. He doesn't say this in a situation of like, yes, get them, Lord, yeah. No, he says, oh, no, that's the end of that life. That's the end of that path. That's destruction. And he says, when you awake, the idea, of course, is not that the, the scripture tells us the God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. It's when you awake to judgment. That God is long suffering in judgment, but when his judgment awakes, there's going to be big trouble. Verse 21, he says, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He, he, he realizes and I saw it all wrong. I just, I just saw a little piece of the whole situation. It's kind of like somebody who kind of walks into a darkened movie theater and watches three minutes of a movie and says, let me tell you how this whole movie turns out. Let me just tell you what happened before. Let me tell you. No, 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 no. You don't know. You don't know. And so that's what, the, that's what Asaph is saying is that I didn't know. And then he says, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. I love that. Jesus never says the way is going to be easy. He says it's going to be difficult. But what is the Asaph says? He says, you're, you're taking me by the hand. You're the author of my story. You're going to guide me with your counsel, with your word. And after this, no matter how hard the path is, no matter how difficult, no matter how heartbreaking, you're going to receive me to glory. 
You're going to take me home to be with you. And then he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. And so again, this is something we'll come back to a little bit later, this idea that there is no one on earth, nothing on earth that can fulfill our desires. Nothing on earth that can fully satisfy us. He says, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. And we've talked about portion already before in, in the Psalms. And he says, forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. For you destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Now, reading and going briefly through Psalm 73 is not going to fix all your problems. <laughs> it's not going to be like you read this one time, you can close your Bible and say, now from now on, I will never be envious of the ungodly. I'll never question God's ways. No, no, no. We're going to have that a lot. But I wanted to bring you to Psalm 73 because I think it's an invaluable piece of scripture to come to again and again and again and again and again. Because as long as we live in this world, we're going to deal with ungodly people. As long as we live in this world, we're going to kind of like, ah, what's God doing in this situation? And as long as we live in this world, we need the encouragement that the end of this path leads to glory. Now, let's go ahead and go back to Psalm 17 as we move into verse 6. He says, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Simple reminder that God hears prayer. <laughs> that God's listening. That prayer is not some merely an exercise so we can have a gold star on a chart, but that we're actually speaking to a being who hears us. Now, there is a warning in scripture, and I'll give it to you. Isaiah 59, verses one and two say this, behold, the Lord, sorry, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So it's important for us that we keep a short account with the Lord because as you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find that though God does hear our prayers, that sin in our life can kind of short circuit that whole deal. You know, Jesus talks about if, if there's uh, bitterness and unforgiveness, you need to take care of that first. Um, if Peter talks about, hey, if you're mistreating your wife, your prayers are hindered. Um, we, you know, there's anger and malice and there's all kinds of variety of ways if we're holding on to sin, that causes our relationship with the Lord not to be what it should be. And we all understand that. You know, if, if you're a parent and your child is harboring something and you want to do something in their life, but they're harboring that thing, you realize they've got to take care of that before I can do this next thing for them. Verse seven, show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. Oh, you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. I love this, that, that marvelous loving kindness. Marvelous is not a word I often use, <laughs> uh, but I love this marvelous loving kindness or your wonderful steadfast love. And what I want to remind you of this, this marvelous loving kindness is that you only love God because he first loved you. Okay, remember that. Sometimes we can kind of get into this Christian idea, or I would say we're Christians who have this idea, not necessarily it's a Christian idea, that I've got to keep myself, I've got to keep God loving me. I've got, got to keep on kind of, you know, putting the spiritual makeup on so he'll still stay attracted to me. 
I got to do all of these things so that he's, no, 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 no. He first loved you. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. So depend on his love. Come to him as one who already loves you, not as one you have to make him love you somehow. And then it says that he talks about his right hand. Show me your loving, marvelous loving kindness with your right hand. That speaks of his personal direct action. In other words, God, intervene in my life so I can see your love. And then he says, save me, which means deliver me. All right, verse eight, keep me as the apple of your eye. That apple of the eye speaks of the pupil of the eye. You know, it's, it's, it's a instinctively protected. When I was a, a freshman at A&M Galveston, and we we're doing our first chem lab, and we had to watch this very dated video called Don't Bet Your Eyes. I don't know if any of you guys ever watched that video, but I remember it so vividly. Don't bet your eyes. And there's all these horrible things that can happen to your eyes in chem lab if you're not wearing safety protection. And so I always wore my safety protection because I didn't want to bet my eyes. And so that's what David is saying to God. Don't bet your eyes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Protect me. And then he says something very interesting here as well. He says, um, and keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Now, what's so interesting about that is primarily it's, it's female birds who protect their young under their wings. And so we kind of think about that in kind of that context. We don't often think about kind of the, I would say, like feminine characteristic of God. But Jesus used very similar imagery in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, when he said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This is really interesting, kind of the imagery here of that, that protection, that mothering that God had for Jerusalem, how he wanted to gather them together. And so David is asking for that. He's asking for that protection. Verse nine, he says, from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. Okay, so David was a guy who was a man after God's own heart, anointed king by God. God loved him. God worked in his life. And yet he had enemies. He had difficulties. He had hardships. And so it's important for us to remember that you can be a person who's loved by God, chosen by God, led by God, and have enemies. And these enemies in the Hebrew, it says that these enemies are deadly and determined. That's the kind of enemies they were. They were were not pushovers. And so again, it's a reminder that believers have always been and will always be persecuted to some extent. Please, Please hear me that. Believers always have and will always be persecuted to some extent. It started from the very first person who was faithfully sacrificing to the Lord, Abel. He's killed by his brother because of that very thing, because he was faithful. And so that's going to last all the way till we have the last martyr of the tribulation period. That's, that's going to continue. Now, obviously, it ebbs and flows, and sometimes are worse than others. But it's a, it's a reality. It's a truth that the ungodly will always persecute the godly to some extent. Verse 10, they have closed up their fat hearts with their mouths. They speak proudly. So the idea here is that these the ungodly people, Saul and others that were pursuing David, the, the, their material abundance, that's what's talked about when it says their fat hearts, the, their material abundance has, has caused them to be proud and self-sufficient. Verses 11 and 12 says, they have now surrounded us in our steps. 
and they have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. And so it's not, it's not pleasant imagery, you know, of, of lion coming after him. Uh, but this is imagery that we see throughout the New Testament. And there's a specific place that I want to talk about that. And would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 5? Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 near the end of your Bibles for just a moment. Because again, these are, these are excellent reminders for us as, as we endure the, the difficult path, as we take the road less traveled. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 8. I'm going to go through verse 11. Peter writes, be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that your, the same sufferings are, not, are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I would encourage you. This is another you know, set of verses similar to Psalm 73 that remind us that, hey, this is how life is going to be on planet Earth. We have a very real enemy who's coming against us. Okay. And so we're to resist him. Okay. And also that the brotherhood throughout the earth, all the believers who are serving faithfully, they're experiencing similar things. Okay. And then we're told, you know, that the God of all grace and eternal glory, but what I really want to focus on in verse 10, it says, after you've suffered a while, okay? Again, no suffering for the believer lasts forever. And so then God's going to what? Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. All right, let's go back to Psalm, Psalm 17 now as we move into verse 13. All right. Verse 13. He says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. So again, David's like, I need your intervention, God. I don't have the resources available to help me. I need you to help me. I need you to intervene. And then verse 14, he says, With your, uh, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life. Okay, this is a really key verse here because David is now shifting again to the ungodly, to the people on the broad way that leads to destruction. He's saying this is what, this is what their life is all about, that, that they have their portion where? In this life. That this is their portion. This is the same thing that the psalmist was, was realizing in Psalm 73. This is what Asaph was realizing, is they have all this stuff, but they only have it here. This, this is their portion. But what David is saying and what Asaph said is for believers, our true portion, our ultimate portion is not in this life. This life is not where we get everything. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. You can look it up on your own. But he says, hey, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because if you store up treasures here on the earth, then what's happened, it's only a matter of time till, you know, rust destroys, thieves break in and steal, moths eat it up, or, or guess what? You die and it goes to somebody else. That's if your portion's in this life. But he says, if you store up treasures in heaven, then you'll have it eternally. And then what's going to happen is as you store up treasures in heaven, your heart will be in heaven. Your heart will be connected to where your true portion is. 
And so that's what's, this is, a, this is really key that we understand that, that what David is talking about. For men of this world who have their portion in this life, and as we continue on, uh, and from whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. Look at that word satisfied here. In other words, the ungodly person just seeking their portion here, their satisfaction here. This world is all that there is. He who dies with the most toys win. All that attitude. And it's, it's easy for you and for me to be swept up, to be baptized in that false teaching. Because we're around it all day, every day. And because this world runs by selling you things that tell you that your portion is in this life. That if you could just have enough here, you'll be satisfied. But, but that's not what we have. Now, what's interesting here in verse 14 is it indicate, David is indicating that God has provided these things for these people. That, that God actually blesses the ungodly. And, and Jesus said something similar in Matthew 6 verse 45. He said, God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so God allows the ungodly to have you know, blessings in this world and riches in this world and all these things in this world because that's all they get. They, they get to enjoy it for a little while, but then it's gone forevermore. Verse 15, here it is, as for me. So David is making distinction. He's saying, that's not what I'm about what those guys are about. He says, as for me, I'm going to be on the road less traveled. And here's the crescendo of this Psalm. He says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. He doesn't say I might, I could, I hope so, maybe so. No, he says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. David is going to see the Lord face to face. David was going to be fully righteous one day before the fully righteous king. And you know what? This is something for you and I to pray because this is a reality. If you're a born again believer, you're going to see God's face and righteousness one day. You're going to see the fullness of his righteousness and you're going to be righteous yourself. And then he says, I shall be satisfied when? When I awake in your likeness. Satisfaction is never fully found here. We're never gonna fully find what we're looking for here. And if we make a person or a job or a product, an idol, with which we will find satisfaction, we're gonna be disappointed, gonna be frustrated. But he says, I shall be satisfied. Satisfaction is coming. It's just not coming in this life. Full satisfaction cannot be found here because that's not what God wants for us. He says, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. I love that. The, the day was coming where he is going to be like unto God. You know, it's, John tells us the day is coming when we're going to know him as he is because we're going to be like him. We're going to have those resurrected bodies. We're going to have that new nature. We're going to have all of those things. So I don't know how it all works out, but I, what I do know about this is that this is a destination worth pursuing. That, that this as an end of a journey worth going on. And so I want to close with a couple of, uh, one quote and then a, then a final conclusion. C.S. Lewis said this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I love that. 
If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, the road less traveled, the difficult way leads inevitably to satisfaction. But the fullness of that satisfaction is only found when we awake in another world.